Welcome to our podcast. I'm Rachel Day and I'm the founder of Flying School. We're an organisation that aims to help children and adults learn how to fly and also learn how to help others fly. Over the coming weeks, I'll be interviewing a range of different people to ask them about their flying stories, what helped them fly and what stopped them, so that we can all gain some ideas and insights and figure out how to do it ourselves. Thanks for joining me. So hello and and welcome everybody. I'm so privileged to be speaking with Nancy Klein today and I know that you'll all find her incredibly inspiring. Nancy created and pioneered the development of the thinking environment. I've come to understand the thinking environment as a way of being in the world that allows others to raise the quality of their thinking and to be able to fully think and be themselves. Nancy is founder and president of Time to Think, a published author and public speaker. She also teaches Time to Think courses. She leads the Time to Think faculty and she delivers keynote presentations around the world. I first met Nancy almost eight years ago now at one of her keynote speeches at a coaching conference. I remember going to introduce myself, but I'll always remember how even in that very brief encounter, she seemed to hold me, give me her full attention and make me feel completely valuable. I was then very fortunate to be taught by Nancy, and I have the opportunity to listen to her thinking through Time to Think Collegiate meetings. Nancy is a huge inspiration to me, and one of the reasons Flying School came about, thanks to her wonderful ability to enable me to think for myself. I am so grateful to her for agreeing generously to join me today and have a conversation about learning to fly. So welcome, Nancy. Lovely, lovely to be with you. Is there anything else that you wish I'd said that I hadn't said at this point? (laughs) Thank you, Rachel. No, I would like, though, to say that you inspire me every day since I've met you and now in particular with flying school, which I think is one of the most beautifully conceived ways to make a better world for us. And I appreciate and feel honored that you want to talk with me today. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you so much. So how would you describe flying for you? Um, How does it, what are you doing? How do you feel? What's your sort of take on that that metaphor, so to speak? It's really such a brilliant concept. I think that for me, there is a kind of alignment that hums that is between what I care about, what I value most, what I think is most important, and how I'm able to express that in the moment with whatever I'm doing. I think that it's that harmony between idea and action that grows out of conviction. And for me in particular, if what you mean by what am I doing, I think that that almost always has to do with when I'm teaching or when I'm 
writing, um, when I am in correspondence with various people as we think together about ideas that are a long way from being formed completely, uh, I think it happens when I am in conversation also with people and when I'm coaching or listening to people or when I'm giving thinking sessions, as we call them. And, and it's, I feel always that I'm flying when I'm with Christopher, my husband. And I, now that you have this beautiful metaphor, I would say that when we fell in love uh, 47, 40 something, whatever, 37 years ago, um, I just described it as that um, in this cliche way, which was that the earth moved. But actually, I think what happened was that I started to fly. Mm. Well, that's, that's a bit of that. Uh, thank you, Nancy. Um, I just feel inclined to ask you what more. <laughs> what more do you think or feel or want to say about flying? Thank you. I think for me now, I think I've had in reserve that there would be a time in my life when I could insert into this life of meaning and flying um, much more quiet time, much more time to sit and be and notice which is different from the quiet time of thinking through a problem or even thinking through an exciting concept. And it's different from being quiet and writing. But the challenge was going to be that I could sit and notice the world right there, which I understand is a kind of mindfulness. But it's for me, the idea was that it would not be a ritual. Um, it would just be that I, I just sort of noticed myself being there. <laughs> And interestingly, during this period of being at home, staying at home during the COVID time, I have been forbidden access to the escape from that idea. And I, I really loved it, that it took that, I think, though. I think it, it did take a kind of act of nature or something, and unfortunately, very one full of, of sadness and horror. Uh, for me to be able to stop certain things and in their place came these moments of quiet flying. That's what I think. How oh, interesting. And, and I, um, one of the things I think you taught me was around the power of paradoxes. And I think the paradox I've been playing with recently around flying is that flying is, um, is feeling grounded. And, and it just makes me think of that when you say that as well. Anson. Wow. Yes, I agree. How beautiful. What a lovely metaphor, uh, paradox. Yes. So Nancy, going back to your childhood, um, what can you remember that had a, a real impact on helping you learn to fly? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, Rachel, that it was my parents. Um, there were teachers, too, and there were opportunities for things that made me see that I could be myself and be acceptable enough for me to feel endorsed as it were, as a person. 
my parents were extraordinary at this, I think, in that my dad, he, my dad himself also was a flyer and found what he wanted to do. And the same with my mother. And I sort of have always felt that it was out of those two lives that were lived flying that I first learned about flying. I think that we learn people more than we learn things and ideas and that it's, it's the people we're learning. And so that I think was important. And then the other was that I heard um, phrases as I grew up from them and I heard them as, uh, accompanied by action that, that confirmed them that were things like, there'll only ever be one of you. And so figure out what you want and what will express you and then do it with your whole heart. And if you can make a living at it, all the better. But if you can't, whatever time you have not earning a living, let it be an expression of you. That had a big impact. And I think that the action then was that when I wanted to go to a certain school, which was a departure from my family for uh, since 1919, all of the family had gone to a particular university. And I didn't want to do that. My big sister also didn't. So that was a good model for me too. But, but I was the first one to go to and, and graduate from a full university experience. And that was a um, big decision. And they, they, they supported and paid for that. And I guess the final thing I would say, because I could talk about that part of my life a lot, um, because it was very rich, uh, that that flying, young flying experience. But I loved to play by myself, and I would make up stories, and I was we had a big garden, and I would be under the tree, and I would be being a combination of, of executive and mother and geologist and um, sort of forest um, explorer. I can remember it was quite busy out there by myself. And um, my mother never interrupted that and never asked me what I was doing. And I always felt she was in the house, just very happy for me to be out there making my own world. And finally, she and daddy both listened to me beautifully. And when they were scared of what I was saying as I got older, ideas, things I was doing, they didn't look alarmed. And they just about never interrupted me. So maybe that's what I, that got me flying, I think. Wow. Thank you for sharing those stories. There's so much richness in that. I absolutely love that comment around we, we learn people not things and um I, I often think as parents our biggest wish is that our children are flying and what we don't always realize is that actually um the first step towards that is us flying ourselves it just was lovely to hear that that's exactly what your parents were doing they role modeled how to fly 
in essence. Fantastic. Yeah. Also really interested in this concept of, of being, being allowed, just being left to play on your own. There's, there's often a feeling as parents that we need to be with our children and we, we can't be doing our own thing in the kitchen. We should be almost full on. We need to be there supporting them and doing what they need. And, and there's so much richness in showing them that they, they can play by themselves. And actually, those are the first times of how you're growing your thinking muscle, so to speak, because no one's telling you what to think or how to be. Yes, I absolutely agree. And um, perhaps a plug uh, for more of that in a, a contemporary childhood and less of uh, a digital world um, to be able to be with one's own self. Yeah. Thank you for those lovely tips and the permission that your parents gave you to fly, even when they didn't always agree with what you were saying and choosing. Um, I think we'll all be in that situation at some point with our children um that we won't agree but but why would we because we're not them love love that thank you for bringing it up thank you so nancy how else have you learnt to be yourself over the years are there any other sort of ideas or tips yes i think that this question what do you really want moved with me into adulthood and became very powerful as I got more and more autonomous and able to build my own life. And I think that having grown up female in a very sexist society, although we still have a very sexist society, but I was growing up sort of pre-feminist um, kind of rethinking of things. Um, and so I had to shed a lot of assumptions about what one should want, especially as a, as a woman. And I think that when I began to think about and was asked more often that question, well, what do you really want? What do you really want? I began to see that things moved and I think that question has to precede or probably just does inherently precede flying you know I think that it's it's the runway or something <laughs> I so love this metaphor you've created and and then I think at this at the same level of influence is the question and what do you think what do you what do you think? And once again, as a woman, it became an, uh, another act of assertiveness to figure that out. And so I think those two things were, were very important. Um, I was, my first job was with the Quakers who are well known for their very fine education and their understanding of the, what they call, well, the sort of uniqueness of each, each person. There's that of God and every person is their way of saying it, but it translates uh, pedagogically into the brilliance of each child and the fine mind that is there to be acknowledged, nurtured, and preserved. 
That's how I would say it. In fact, it was the Quaker headmaster of the school where I had my first job who who said to me, I don't care which books you teach. I was was an English teacher. Um, Your students are learning you. Be sure you like what they're learning. So, and I know that it was in that community of thought that I, I began to fly uh, to destinations that where I see myself now. That was a, a very important launching point. Well, how how did you begin to learn to fly there? Was it because of the sort of environment that they created? Was there anything specific? Any anything in particular that stands out as a moment that really helped? I think in addition to that one from um, from the headmaster, Thorny Brown, there was a moment. That my first year there was 1968 to 69. And when I arrived on campus straight out of university, the Vietnam War was raging. And my twin brother was fighting in that war. And so in my family, we were pro the war. And I never examined that. But the Quakers, especially at this school, because it was very true to its ideology, um, its lack of ideology about ideology, but anyway, they have this, they definitely have a peace covenant. And what happened about once a week was that there would be experts that came to talk. These were all teenagers in the student body that um, there would be these experts that would come to talk about the war, what a lost cause it was and how brutal and Um, unconscionable it was. And I was the only person in this school community that was for the war. And I had a Nixon sticker on my bumper of my new car too. And and everybody else, of course, had not voted for Nixon. So they embraced me, Rachel, as if I were a, a completely fine human being. And every time in their meeting for worship, every single morning, we gathered for 15 minutes of silence. And out of that, people could speak something inspired. Um, And I once in a while stood and said pro-war things and noticed that everybody still um, was there. And they didn't walk out and they didn't kick me out. And and on the way to classroom after that, you know, they were nice to me and everything. And that was pretty surprising to me how embraced I was for my difference. And then one day, the head of the English department, Peter Klein, said to me, I'd like to know why you are for the war. And what was special about that was that I could tell he really wanted to know. Part of flying, I think, is learning how to want to know what somebody else thinks when it is different from what you think. And even threatening to you and and maybe even threatening to a nation, the the idea, you know. And Peter said to me again gently, Nancy, I'm interested. You said that you think the communists would invade the U.S. How exactly would that work? Well, I said, sitting up straight, you see... The communists are out there, and their idea is to get to America and take us over. And we need to defeat them there in Vietnam instead of waiting for them to come here. If we don't fight there, they will come to the shores of New York City. And that will be the beginning 
of communism in America. Well, I stopped. And Peter said, I see, as if he were talking to the same person. He said, I can understand why that would alarm you. And after New York City surrenders, he said, what do you think they will do next? And again, Rachel, he wasn't being cynical or sarcastic. He really wanted to know what I thought. So I said, well, then they will, uh, they will, well, they will march to Washington and then to Virginia and then Mississippi and Texas and end up in New Mexico in my hometown and kill us all. And that would be the end of American democracy as we know it. I smiled. And Peter said, well, I can absolutely understand why you would be frightened of that. I would be too. And then he asked, again, truly interested, and how exactly do you think they might get that far? Well, I said, still perky. Yes, well, they would, well, you see, they would, well, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm not completely clear about that detail. I looked at him. I could feel myself starting to shake. And I said, you know what? I think I'll think about that for a few days and get back to you. And I got up. That would be great, Peter said again, gently. And that was that. He went back to work. And I went back to nowhere. How were the communists going even to get to New York City and not be wiped out by our iconic military that I defended as if a god? Never mind get to New Mexico 2,000 miles further on. And you know, Rachel, something dropped off bits of itself all around me, it seemed like. I guess... That was my carefully constructed, carefully unexamined life falling apart. And eventually I was standing there with only my empty mind to prop me up, it seemed like. And I had promised Peter I would think about that. In effect, I had promised him that I would think for myself. Maybe for the first time in my life. And hard as I tried, I could no longer make the war make sense. I wanted to. My twin brother was fighting over there. I needed for the war to make sense. What if he died? It had to mean something. And for three days, I tried. But by Monday... I no longer could hammer that war into anything remotely reasonable. How exactly would that work? It wouldn't. And I started to wonder, is that what the Quakers do? Ask and listen? And an independent mind is born?
Yeah, and that is what Peter Klein in particular did with everyone. That is how he taught, too. And I know that he was teaching me, in effect, how to fly so that I could teach others. Anyway, Rachel, it was lovely to remember all of that. Thank you for wanting to know. Thank you for sharing, because I, I think that it's a real trait of all of ours, but certainly as children, we tend to um, go with what, if, if we sort of repeat what our parents say, you know, to other people, or we repeat this sort of ideology of the people that we respect, then it's a safe place as a child. We don't have to think about whether we agree with it. We just know that it's okay because it's safe. And um, so it's wonderful for us to really think about as parents, are we always giving that sort of balanced view? And are, are we always saying, well, I think this, but, but what do you think? Right? What, what, else, what else am I missing? Or, you know, where am I, you know, what do you think? And so we, so I just love the way that he drew that thinking out of you without the judgment. And I'm just going to repeat what you said, which is there was no sarcasm. There was no cynicism. There was no asking you a question already knowing what he thought. There was asking you a question with a real curiosity of wanting to know what you think. And just like you say, just a wonderful way of helping people learn to fly. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad. It was lovely to retell it. He, he was quite extraordinary. Yeah. So, Nancy, were there any moments that stopped you from flying that you can think of? I would imagine there'll be a few, but, yeah, are there any in particular that stand out for you that might have stopped you flying over the years? Well, yes. I can think of three. I'll, I'll, I'll say at least two. Um, let's see. I was 11, I think, years old. I had a teacher who said that I did not have a brain for mathematics or science and that I should um, steer my academic pursuits in another direction, I guess. And that did limit me, and it has been a struggle, but not an, an unfruitful struggle to rethink that, that injunction to give up. Um, science, is, as of about 10 years ago, became a, a personal pursuit for me. And um, I now have a science mentor. It, it, that's one thing. And then with other people as well, just talking about and reading about science. And I'm trying to reclaim my, just as a human being, the right to pursue science. And then during my university years, there was um, a person who essentially said the same thing. They were... Um, majoring, we call it in America, in science and would never talk to me about the concepts and, and, and essentially said, you're good at a lot of stuff, but you're never going to be good at science. So I think that was hard for me. There was another period in my adult life, though, when um, 
I had to make a choice between staying embraced by a, a certain circle of professionals or, and if I did, staying complicit in what I thought was corruption or calling the corruption and calling out the leadership and using my influence to make clear what I knew was going on and being unwelcome. And in the end, I, 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 I charged it so that I could expose what I could expose. And then the retaliation would be such that it would be clear that this corruption is, was rooted in power. And then I, I withdrew. And so I, it's a funny one that the reason I hesitate so much is it's a funny one in that it was a time of attempted suppression to take your metaphor, it was a time of attack and an attempt to down the plane. Um, But in the end, it turned out to be a way for me truly to fly. And to some extent, Rachel, the emergence of my deep interest in and pursuit of the question, how do you help people think for themselves, that's led to the thinking environment, that's led to the time to think kind of um, courses and all of that and all the books. In a kind of way, it was that incident when I had to choose between flying and crashing that allowed the flight to go and to go to all new different places. I, I can see the roots of it before that, for sure. But it was, I think, that juncture that that really made it possible for me to take off. And the odd thing is that it was in defying the attempt to stop me flying that allowed me to fly. How interesting. So it isn't about us necessarily avoiding some of the things that might stop us flying. It's maybe about us working through those things um, and to and to be able to show ourselves that we can. Well said. Yes, I think so. And maybe you could even say it's a sort of crucible, you know, that that's where we find ourselves at the moment, those big moments of decision. Yeah. And is, was there anything in particular that helped you at that big moment, um, helped you sort of move through it? Yes, it was uh, very concretely. It was the uninterrupted listening rooted in profound interest in what I really thought and and what I knew that came from Christopher. And uh, it was within seven months of meeting him. (laughs) And he was extraordinary. But yeah, I mean, I can mark that time for sure. Mm. We really do need other people to help us fly, don't we? And Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I know I said in my introduction that you've helped me so much, Nancy, and, and numerous others. Um, so is there anything that you would like to share on how how you help others fly? Any, any sort of tips or ideas for people listening? Um, 
Thank you. I think that it's possible that each time we ask somebody, what do you think? We have opened up the cockpit. Um, I think that, and then that has to be followed by interest, which I think is more than curiosity. That it is, interest is self-free, that it's selfless, that if I'm interested in where you'll go next in your thinking, I don't direct you with my curiosity. So I think that that kind of interest that then is communicated through and ideally a promise of no interruption, but certainly the, 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 the event of no interruption, I think does allow people to find themselves and value themselves and clarify who they are. And maybe not all in one go, but certainly repetitively is a, I think is a way to help people fly. The other thing I think is that if they, if we appreciate people genuinely and succinctly and don't expect anything back and we do it without manipulation over time, that also, and by appreciate, I mean, acknowledging traits or, or even events, but things about them that have, that you think are, are deserving of respect. I think that makes a difference. We lodge those things when we hear them. And then I think finally, Rachel, and I, I this would take a whole nother thing to, time to talk about, but I do think there is this thing, there's a phenomenon that the human mind loves, I think, which is called an incisive question. I'm, the word uh, I chose because it, it actually incises, removes an untrue limiting assumption and replaces it with a true liberating one. And I'm, the mind does this automatically when it's on a roll. When we're flying, I think we're, we're essentially asking ourselves those questions all the time. And I think that one of the things that people can do to help people fly is to hear the assumptions they're making that are their living is true, but that are not provably true, and replace them in the form of a playful question with assumptions that are true and, li and liberating. And that's an if you knew, how would you sort of question. And that does make the mind fly. All that hypothesis surrounding the truth helps people fly. Wonderful. Appreciation. I mean, in my experience of appreciation, which is um, over the years of doing millions of, of things with people, you almost gather them as little treasures for your suitcase. And, and they also, they shine a light on, on who we are. And I've been thinking a lot about what does it mean to be yourself? Because there's no, there's no reference point. And um, we can't look at other people and see if we're doing it right, because then we're not being ourselves. And I think appreciation is one way of us learning to be ourselves because people are are showing us what it means to be us um, in a in a yeah beautiful succinct way without changing who we are. Um, yes, definitely said. Yeah. Thank you for that gift. Um, so Nancy, 
what is important to you now? Is there anything in particular that helps you fly that you haven't already said that you wanted to share? Thank you. I, I think I would just um, underscore what you've just said about taking time to think on a regular basis with this kind of attention. And therefore I would say that every thinking session as we call it, or every even just five minute thinking pair with somebody, anytime we get attention to think for ourselves makes a difference. And that for certainly marks my week and, and keeps me flying. And is there any other piece of wisdom that you would like to share that's important in terms of us all learning to fly or help others learn to fly? I think that helping someone fly is an act of love. And as you've said so beautifully, if as parents, for example, we consider it our primary job to help our children fly, meaning figure out who they are and live that. I think it is probably the greatest act of love. And I think we can do that with each other as adults. And I think your vision includes that we do that as teachers too. So when we say, I love you, I think we need to be making sure what we mean is, I want you to fly. Wow, thank you. Wow, that's fantastic to hear, Nancy. Thank you. And thank you for so much for taking the time to share your stories with us, share your wonderful wisdom and insights. Um, I, I know people might want to know more. So just in terms of um, if people, I want to direct people to the Time to Think website, which will have much more about your work, but also links to your books, Time to Think, More Time to Think. Uh, living with time to think the goddaughter letters which i think is particularly wonderful for parents um and i think there's a new book as well nancy that's um that's about to be released is that right by penguin what's the name of that book do you want to tell us a bit more it's called the promise that changes everything i won't interrupt you and I guess and hope that the title speaks for the book itself. And that will be out in the autumn. It was a wonderful experience writing that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nancy. So, so um, privileged to have some time with you today and for you to share, share all of your ideas and thinking. So thank you. Really, really appreciate um, you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And I just want to be sure you know that it was my privilege to be with you. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. And that's the end of our podcast for today. Thanks so much for listening. Please do share if you can so we can encourage as many people as possible to learn how to fly. And we'd also love you to join us. Please visit www.flyingschool.fun and send us your email. Thanks again. Till next time. Goodbye.